Hey everyone, welcome to My Two Cents with Tawanda Harris. This is a podcast dedicated to educators, for educators, and by educators. Yes, it's all about encouraging, it's all about sharing strategies, it's all about going on an educational journey with each other. You are not alone, and I hope that when you finish listening to this podcast, you feel like you went on a journey with educators around the world. Thank you for tuning in to My Two Cents. So the saying goes something like, if you stop learning, you stop teaching, or if you don't want to learn anymore, then just stop teaching. I, you get my drift. I know I butchered that so much. But the point is, as educators, we're constantly learning and we're constantly growing, not just for ourselves, but for our students. In this episode, I sit down with Trisha Ibarvia and Dr. Sonia Cherry-Paul, and we have a conversation around just that. How do we continue to learn and be better for our students? So we have a treat today. We are going to be in conversation with Dr. Sonia Cherry-Paul, as well as Trisha Ibarvia. So we'll just go ahead and get started. I'm going to ask each of you to share your teacher journey. Anyone that wants to go first can. Hmm. Sonia, why don't you go first? (laughs) Uh, Okay. All right. I'll go first. so by my teacher journey, do you mean how I became a teacher? Because it's actually an interesting story. Um, yes. I was not a teacher. I was, uh, at first, I was, I started my career in the music industry. Oh, wow. Um, I majored in um, music business and I worked for Polygram Records and I worked for an off-Broadway production um and so that was going to be my life um i was going to be in the in the in the in the music industry and um and i had gotten married and we started a family and my life had to change because in the music industry you know i could be um you know going to work at 11 o'clock in the morning and (laughs) and staying out till 11 o'clock at night you know going from work to an event and and um, that was not the kind of life that could work um, for me as a, as a young mom. Um, and so I, I left that career and eventually found my way to education. My grandfather always said that I would be a teacher. And so I thought about that when I was trying to figure out what am I going to do? Um, and I thought, let me go back to school, um, which I think is, always been the answer for me when I, whenever I felt stuck in my life or had questions. So I went back to school, um, took a couple of courses, loved it, majored in education. And that's, that was my journey to becoming a teacher. Wow. Did your grandfather, was he able to see you as an educator? Unfortunately, no, he passed when I was 15, um, but I, I had a very close and special relationship with him. And, you know, it, I, I just always felt his presence in my life. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I 100% feel you about the music industry. When we started a family, my husband and I started a family, he was in the music industry. And I remember being pregnant with my son, I would leave out to go to work and he would be coming in. I said, Oh, no, 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 this is not going to, (laughs) I cannot uh, in any way uh, do this on my own. So he is now an educator, the irony in that all he is now an educator. And so we um, get to enjoy that part of it. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. All right. So Trisha. Yeah. So my journey as an educator, um, is interesting in the sense that if you had told me, um, when I was younger that, um, I would be teaching, I would have never believed you because, um, growing up, I was very introverted. I was a type of kid who could go a whole day without raising my hand in class, I would be horrified if a teacher called on me. Um, So to say, to be someone who stands in front of possibly what is the most critical audience in the world, which is a group of teenagers, that (laughs) would not have, I would not have predicted that at all. Um, But, you know, I think that um, education as a value has always been important to my family. Um, I mean, that was something, you know, my parents are from the Philippines, and I think that it was very clear that my job, my quote unquote job and my responsibility as a young person when I was going through school is to be a student. And, to, and you know, there are pluses and minuses with that, but you know, the value of education was very clear in my family. Um, and, um, and I think for me, it was around when I was in college that I started to realize that I wanted to work with people. I took some classes on education um, policy and history. And I think my desire to become a teacher was really rooted in a belief in education and a belief in um, the importance of it and the right of every child to have a education, um, a good education that allows them to seek and any opportunity they might want. Like I, that was really, I deeply felt that as a young, as a young person, you know, trying to figure out what to do with their life. Um, and I knew I liked working with people and that I couldn't have an office job. And I also love to read and write. And so um, that kind of putting all those pieces together is what led me to teaching. Did you have a preference when you um, wanted to go into education or when you started, was it um, a preference of working with older students? Yeah, definitely. Because I think for me, it was, because um, I, 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 the, the parts about, um, the parts about uh, English that really, when I think back to the classes that I was, that were really compelling to me, they were really the ones in my high school, my high school English classes, right? And the books that I read when I was an adolescent. So I think that those were really formative years and those are the books that I wanted to discuss. Um, those are the books that I wanted to teach and help kids unpack. So yeah, it was definitely, it was, in some ways it was about the age group, but if I'm really being honest in reflection, it was also about the content. Like I wanted to be able to have conversations around, um, you know, I, I think more difficult texts, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, when I first started, um, I, I was an elementary school teacher, but in the summers when I would, during my certification program, I would go back home and student teach, excuse me, not student teach, I would substitute teach in our local school system. And sometimes I would get middle school assignments. And I remember walking into the middle school classrooms and these faculty and staff would say, what are you doing in here? Where's your teacher? 
And I'm thinking, no, but I am the teacher. And I would just, you know, clam up because I was so, I looked so young. And I just, you know, kind of developed this anxiety around working with older children. Of course, that kind of went away. So, you know, as I'm listening to you, I'm like, wow, would I have first started off by saying I wanted to work with older children? I think many, many teachers kind of, you know, I think it is true that for many, many teachers, we know that age group that we feel most connected to. You know, I, I started off with middle schoolers and I knew that I needed to be a middle school teacher. I knew that um, with every, you know, every ounce of my being, I knew that I belonged in a middle school. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's not unusual to just kind of know where you, where you fit. I think it's rare to have teachers who are like, I can take any age, you know, and, and, and make that work. And I think that is, um, you know, I think that benefits kids, right? When we, when we can see ourselves working with a particular age group because we just feel um, connected and, um, and we can bring our, our full selves to, to what we do in that way. Yes. So, you know, when you all were in the classroom, or I, I know, um, Trisha, you're just leaving the, the classroom. Um, you had a recent post and it just really kind of hit home for me, you know, when I had to make, when I made the decision to kind of leave the classroom um, to just go into a different role. But how would your students, how would you say your students described your classroom when you were in the classroom? Right. Um, and so when I think about like <laughs> when I was in the classroom, so, I mean, I'm, I was in the classroom as a Friday. <laughs> so it's really, um, I don't know when I've been talking to a lot of people and I don't know when I will think of myself as not being in the classroom, but, um, but yes, I am transitioning to a role that's still in a school and still going to be working with kids every day, but I'll be transitioning to a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Congratulations. Thank you. At a, a pre-K to eight friend school um, nearby. Um, so I'm excited about that because I think that will also give me an opportunity to have the whole range of experience from pre-K to 12. Um, and so I, I, while I grieve not having, let's say, assigned kids on a roster to me, now I have 300 something kids who are all my students, right? And I'm, I'm excited about that and the work that I'm going to be able to do with them and with all their teachers. Um, I think if it's interesting that you ask like how would kids um, describe what my classroom um, is like when they're or when they're in my classroom. Because I, you know, am leaving, um, and um, I've gotten, you know, several messages and emails from kids who are just so wonderful and um, so kind and generous in terms of, you know, I always get some of these. I always get these notes at the end of the year, but these felt more meaningful because one, um, it would because it was my last. It's my last year at my current school, and two, because of this, the way this past year has been. And so what um, one student actually wrote a really nice email and told me that he felt that um, I was one teacher who was always very understanding of students and probably one of the most understanding, um, someone who felt that, that he felt that he um, could always speak his mind and that, and actually I had another student in a note that I just read about being able to have difficult conversations and make space for them. I mean, we've had a couple really tough conversations in my classes this year because of course the pandemic and um, because of all these recent um, events about racial, around racial injustice and also around some community things. Like we, mm -hmm. 
one of my classes, um, we lost a student this year. Um, and so um, that was personal for those kids. And I think being, you know, the way, in the ways that I can, I try to make space for those moments that are about life and not curriculum, because in many ways, the kids are the curriculum. So what do the kids need? Do they need time to write and process um, versus, you know, the classes that might, you know, just forge right ahead as if like the world isn't happening outside. So I think one thing that I've heard over and over again from students is, um, I think the ability or the um, opportunities, I should say, in class to be able to discuss things that are, to discuss and process things happening in the outside world and to make connections and ask questions um, that I think is really the gift of, you know, literacy. Um, and um, I think that's one thing that I think all students would probably say that they could, they felt like they could be heard and that they could, you know, have a place to process and ask questions and maybe in ways that they weren't in other classes. Yeah, that, that discuss and process that, that is very powerful discuss and process. I think so often we give time for students to discuss, but that processing piece, you know, just providing space, quiet time, you know, a, a, a time for students to just really reflect on what does this mean for me and how, you know, how am I impacted or, you know, what is my reaction, my emotional reaction, but providing a safe space for that to happen is so, so, so crucial. So, um, Sonia, when you were in the classroom, mm -hmm. what did that, what, what would your students have described your classroom as being? Yeah, so um, I left the classroom in 2017. And um, I think, you know, my students would describe my classroom as a place where, where they were challenged, um, not only academically, but in terms of how they treated one another, and how they, they engaged the world around them. Um, I worked in an environment that sort of doubled down on individualism. Um, and I was the teacher who placed a great deal of importance of, of, of importance in collectivism. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my students would, would describe my classroom as a collaborative space. And I'm fortunate that um, many of my former students have kept in touch with me. So one student in particular from my very first class in this school district is uh, not only did I get a chance to see her get married, she's now announcing that she's um, starting a family. Wow. And it's just wild because I remember this young person as a, as a fifth grade student entering my classroom and she had just been diagnosed with juvenile diabetes. She was a wreck. Her family was a wreck. And I, it was my first year in the district and I promised them that I would take care of their baby. <laughs> like I promised them and, and that this would be a classroom where we would take care of each other. Um, so I hope that my students would say that, um, that to be true about my classroom. I, I think there are some students who felt that I was strict. Um, and I, and I get that criticism uh, about myself. I can look back and, and certainly see that. Um, and I often reflect on, on the mistakes that I made and, 
and where that was coming from. Um, and some of it was just being young and new and, and other kinds of mistakes, I think had a lot to do with being the, the black teacher in the predominantly white school district and the pressure of feeling that I needed to be exceptional. Um, I can also identify the ways that I bought into whiteness, the adherence to standards and routines that didn't always serve my students well. Um, so I can definitely look back and, and think about, you know, my classroom in that, in that light as well. Um, but I think my students would describe my, my classroom also as a place where they read more than they did in any other grade, um, where they read about characters and people and, and, their, and their lived experiences. And, and because of that and the kinds of conversations they had in my classroom, they were able to look at their own lives differently. Um, I, think, I think they, they describe my classroom as one where there were more questions than answers mm -hmm. and, and that it was a place where their teacher was deeply engaged in learning alongside them. Yeah, I, I, you know, um, when you said that the standards and, and really just as you were in the classroom, just reflecting back on just adherence to standards when that wasn't the goal, you know, really connecting with students. Mm -hmm is the goal. And uh, I know that my first year teaching that there are so many um, things that I need to go back and apologize to my students for. Mm -hmm. But I remember, you know, really being in that space. I'm a first year teacher and I just want to get it right. And so the focus of the school was around test scores. And so we focused heavily on the quantitative piece on how students were performing. And so as a first year teacher, I'm thinking, okay, we'll post our scores up and that, that is what we're going to do. And that became my mission to check off my box. And, you know, over time I grew as an educator and I realized that the con connecting with my students had much uh, more value than anything. Mm -hmm. And when I was a teacher of the year, there's a jar that I was given as a third grade teacher of the year. Well, I was a third grade teacher and I was a teacher of the year. There's a jar that I still have. Now I've been in education for 20 years and there's a jar that every single one of my third graders wrote a, on a strip of paper and it was rolled up in this, this uh, mason jar of why they loved me. And not one said, because you taught me how to pass a test, <laughs> not one of them. And so, you know, that, that is so important to me. They said, because I felt love, because I felt valued, because I felt all of these things. And those things were much more moving and much more meaningful for me as a teacher. So yes, I, you know, I, I do agree that sometimes, you know, when we're starting off that focus of tests, test, test, is you know a disillusioned way of how we educate students. Yeah, and I just think that you know in certain contexts that pressure can be felt more. I remember my first year, one parent um, um, in my classroom, uh, a white parent said to me, "I hope you're not going to be the kind of teacher that teaches to the bottom third of the classroom. I hope you'll be the teacher who teaches to the top third." Um, that was year one in this district. And so 
you know, while I definitely owe some kids an apology, that <laughs> is for sure. I also, I also um, can have some some empathy for myself trying to navigate this mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out who I was and could be yeah. in that space and in that in that context with this incredible tension around um, expectations from parents and caregivers and administrators and also uh, my own morals and my own, you know, compass. Um, it wasn't easy to navigate. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this year and, um, Trisha, you kind of spoke to it a little bit about just this year being a very different year, um, in education overall. Um, and, you know, as the pandemic hit, there were a lot of inequities that had been on display for all to see. Not that they were new, it was on display for all to see at the same time. And, you know, education, we were forced to rethink instruction, assessment, our curriculum, especially for black and brown children because of all of the racial injustices that were on display. So, um, you know, as the doors began to open back up, you know, the question is, what are some things educators can do to hold on to some of the needed shifts that um, to ensure that we are being equitable and inclusive of all voices in our classroom? I think that's a good question. And I think it's an important thing for um, schools and school leaders to ask themselves because I saw a lot of great things that happened this year. You know, I saw, for example, you know, uh, food was not a barrier. Right, because lunch was provided. I saw things like testing being waived in many places, not all places, but in many places. I saw things like in my own school, for example, midterm and final exams, we would, did away with them, right? Like these, I think there were a lot of things that I, I think um, many systems and structures, because of the pandemic, realized were non essential and were also. Um, disproportionately affecting um, students of color or marginalized students, right? Because the system, which is rooted in normed and whiteness, um, it can't hold, it, 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 it was under stress, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think there were a lot of great things. I think being for, on a teacher level, I think being more understanding about, um, you know, whether like about assignments, about, you know, what are priorities in the classroom? Like I. I, the question that I always ask myself all year was if these kids are coming into the classroom, like what, what is the instruction that I can provide that makes it worth them being in the classroom? If these kids are going to spend 80 minutes online with me, right? Like what is the instruction that I can provide that makes that worth it for them, right? And that's a question we should be asking ourselves all the time, um, but it's heightened during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think institutions need to keep asking those questions. There's a real, um, you know, as places start opening up, as, you know, this, you know, people's impatience starts to wear and um, thin or patient starts to wear thin, I think that there's a real um, feeling of wanting to get back to normal, like, like getting back to normal and going back to all the different things that we had before. And, and you're seeing a lot of these advocacy groups, parent advocacy groups, who are also um, lobbying to get things back to normal, whether normal means opening physical school buildings or whether normal means having curriculum that doesn't talk about Black Lives Matter. Because apparently before George Floyd, they didn't understand what that was or what that meant or didn't understand, you know, and, and I think having 
classes online also opened up our teaching to greater scrutiny in ways that it wasn't before, right? And so there's this whole bigger political context that's happening. And I think that it's gonna be a real test for school leaders to ask themselves uh, about who they're listening to, who are their constituencies are they listening to among many, who are the, among the many competing voices, especially as you have a larger society or larger, um, I don't know, uh, I would call it what Dr. Carol Anderson says is white rage, right? Like I think what you see happening right now in the legal system is, um, you know, Carol and Dr. Anderson says that trigger for white rage is black advancement in any kind of way. And if you, one form of black advancement is space in a curriculum, space in a conversation. And so if you're gonna talk about Black Lives Matter, if you're gonna talk about, you're gonna introduce books that feature, you know, black characters, you know, experiencing joy and, un, you know, and unpacking systemic racism, that's taking up space in what, you know, whiteness would deem is their space. And now you see laws that are being passed to eliminate any conversation about race and racism. Mm -hmm. And so I think school leaders really need to one, recognize that that is what's happening Okay. To think about who are the people that they're listening to when they're actually making decisions? Who are they centering in their decisions? Are they are they on the defensive, right? Or are they going to actually um, live into the values that many of them, you know, proclaim to have at the start of the pandemic with all of their equity initiatives? And, you know, take a moment to stand strong and say, you know what, the voices we're going to listen to are the ones that we said we're going to listen to because, and because it helps everybody, right? Everybody benefits when we can all be free. Everybody benefits when we can all talk about race and racism, honestly. Yes. Yeah. I think, you know, what Trisha was saying about what we saw at the pandemic is, is so key for us to hold on to as we um, as we move forward with the next school year and and start to gear up right with the pandemic we saw a real effort um, and urgency around removing barriers such as Trisha named around food around waving testing computers right and um you know, in New York City, kids suddenly it was like, we've got to get them devices. And then it was like Wi-Fi. We have to help families gain uh, Wi-Fi access, yeah. access to books, right? How are we going to get books to kids? Oh my goodness, we've got to get these free subscriptions for, for kids to sign up to online, you know, providers, or maybe we're going to make, you know, these book baggies and have parents and caregivers come by and, and pick them up. There was this urgency. And so what we need to be willing to do is sit in the discomfort of the question of where was this urgency prior to the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Because the need was always there. And what's gonna happen as we move back to, as Tricia said, quote unquote, normal that so many people wanna get back to, mm -hmm. are, are, we, are we gonna suddenly forget this need and, and drop this urgency? So I think, Educators can keep lots of important questions at the forefront of their, of their minds as they are making decisions about next year. And these are questions that, you know, Tricia and I ask of educators all the time. Questions like who and what is being centered, right, in, in these decisions. Um, if we're willing to ask, you know, that question of ourselves and all that we do, we're better able to make decisions that are more just, more equitable, in terms of curriculum and instruction and, ass and assessment. And so I really think that a set of questions 
can be part of an anti-racist toolkit that can guide educators and shape their practice as they are moving toward this next school year. Who and what is, is centered and for what purpose being the overarching question, right? Thinking about the curriculum and instruction, how is it recognizing and affirming black and brown people centering their backgrounds and histories and lives mm -hmm. um, such as in the texts that we're using, but not just limited to texts, right? We have to also be pushing beyond just it being about books. Um, how are we doing this work in ways that are not just locating the experiences of, of people of color in oppression? How is that instruction and curriculum and the decisions that educators are making um, recognizing powerful ways of knowing and learning that are grounded in cultural and community and collective practices. Um, what, what's happening to shatter silences about race? So as Trisha's talking about teaching kids about Black Lives Matter, um, you know, we should not have needed uh, George Floyd as the reason for us to be doing that work. Um, so what happens next? Do we, do we continue to shatter silences or do we, you know, go back to quote unquote normal? How are we helping students to identify how racism works as a system rather than simply isolated acts of hate? Um, so these are, these are just some of the questions that I, I really hope educators will hold on to. So um, you both, I'm super excited about attending this year, I-R-E-L. So in collaboration with Heinemann Publishing, you both have come together, together to offer educators with the interrogating internalized racism in ourselves and in our practices, multi-day institute, which last year was my first year and it definitely will not be my last year, it was so awesome. But I, um, I want you all can, to speak to how this came about and just why is it important for educators to internalize and make this a part of their practice or who they are as an educator? Um, I would say that as far as the internalizing ourselves, like thinking about that, like our one of our institutes, I would say that, um, you know, teachers, for better or for worse, we teach who we are. And I think people who say that they can or have a professional self and a personal self are fooling themselves because that's just not true. I mean, um, how we, you know, how we think about the world, all the implicit biases that we carry, the experiences that we've had, all of those things inform the way we, that they inform how we interact with kids. They inform, how, you know, what our expectations are for some kids and others. From a literacy perspective, it informs what we think is, li what literature is valuable and not valuable. You know, I mean, I don't want to get into the quote unquote canon wars, but I mean, how we are socialized and the biases that have resulted um, because of that socialization is very much part of curricular decisions, right? And I think that if you don't understand where your definition of good writing or where your definition of good literature or your definition more broadly of what it means to be quote unquote educated came from and the institutions and the history of those institutions that socialized you into that thinking, then you're more likely than not 
to perpetuate that system. And what's the system that you're perpetuating? We can just look at the data. The data is, is that we have systems and structures in place that have resulted in, in inequitable discriminatory outcomes for students of color and other you know, marginalized groups. That's just true. That's not because kids themselves, certain kids are lacking. It's because the system wasn't built for them. It, the, the system is working as it is designed right, given all of the priorities that, you know, some that it prioritizes some children over the others. So if you don't understand how your, how your own conception of schooling and being educated and being literate, if you don't understand how that's all been part of a greater construct, then you will continue to perpetuate those I perpetuate those things and I know that because that's the journey that I have also been on mm -hmm. you know I think about the ways in which that I I I believed I was very well educated because I went to good schools that I read certain things and because these were the things my teachers told me were valuable mm -hmm. but at the end of the day like what did I lose there too like what voices did I not see whose stories did I not hear? And how am I actually suffering for that now as an adult? And, and how am I not able to, how, do, how, how might I have to do work now as an adult to fill in the gaps as I unlearn and relearn all of history and all the other voices in literature that I was not exposed to. So those, you know, I think understanding how we've been socialized and interrogating those biases that have resulted from the, our socialization is critical as a teacher for both curricular decisions, as well as, again, how we just relate to kids and how we treat them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about all that, all that you just said. And, you know, there's a difference between well-schooled and well-educated. Mm. And can one consider themselves well-educated? Well, I would say they should not consider themselves well-educated when their education has been limited and built upon um, you know, erasure and silencing of, of, of so many voices. So you know, this work that we do at IREL is essential because as Trisha said, it's about us you know, engaging in this process of, of interrogating and then learning, unlearning and relearning. And it's interesting because the, the, the origin story of, of IREL, um, you know, is an example of, of how we're trying to disrupt um, systemic racism. And so it's important for, for folks to know we have two institutes. One is interrogating internalized racism in ourselves and our practice. And the second is understanding systemic racism, society, schools, and classrooms. And several years ago, there was a discussion on social media about the absence of black and brown educators as, as presenters at educational conferences and the pattern of white educators being featured as presenters. Um, you, you get the, you know, you get the image on social media or you get the brochure or the mailer or the flyer, whatever you call it. And you, and you look at it and you just see white educator after white educator after white educator. And I was essentially trying to make the hashtag conference so white, <laughs> you know, after, after, after Oscar so white, 
Uh-huh. I was trying to make this a thing because too many of the white educators that are routinely featured were either silent about racism mm-hmm. or superficially talking about it. And yet educators and scholars of color who had been doing this work for years were not being featured in these in these conferences. So that was a really problematic trend and example of, of structural racism that, that still exists, by the way. Um, there, there was a group of educators, it's important to say that, right, who developed uh, an equity rider and, and they had asked white educators to sign it, to change the practices of, of these conferences, to get them uh, to understand that they were not going to show up unless they were more equitable and inclusive in their in their presenters. Now I understand that there are white educators who did sign it and who didn't. So no no surprise there, right? Yeah. So that was that was one thing. And and Trisha and I dreamed of running an institute where educators could come together in commitment to the ongoing work of equity. Trisha was just talking about her journey and you know you know certainly my journey. You know I I as I said earlier am someone who constantly returned to school because I kept asking questions and not finding answers. And it wasn't until, you know, I kept going back to school, I I was able to recognize, oh, right, there are whole theories that describe what I'm experiencing and noticing and feeling. There are names for these things. And it was just, it was, it was just so um, revolutionary for me um, and, and important for me to, to study that. And so I like to think of IREL as a commitment and, and an investment that we are committing to the iterative process of doing that learning and unlearning and relearning and understanding that this is lifelong work. And we're investing in ourselves when we take the time to do this. We're taking the much needed time to dedicate to to challenging and changing ourselves in community with educators around the nation and and around the world. But what I appreciate most about, you know, IREL um, when I attended last year for the first time was the, the community that you spoke about, Sonia. Um, that you you all created and um, my group we had a space that when you all had the the learning that made my head spin and um, my head hurt after I I read everything I'm like oh gosh this is a lot this is great like I literally had to like unpack it bite size by bite size but having a space in which we could converse with each other um, and just, you know, talk about some challenges that we had in our workplace around these concepts, like what barriers were there. So, you know, I just, I thank you all for just really carrying this thing through because we need more of that in education. Mm, thank you. Thank you. So glad you were able to, to be there with us and we're glad you're continuing on the journey this year as well. Yes. And I'll put um, also just know that um, listeners that all of the links will be in the show notes as well um, so that you all can register. Registration still open, correct? Yep. Yes. Okay. Last year it was sold out and I was like, no. (laughs) 
So um, I made sure I didn't miss out this time. So anyway, I'll put that in the show notes as well. What are some things that you think building leaders can do to support this work um, in the classroom as well as in the school community? So around with our families as well. Transparency is important. You know, I think that especially in this environment right now that um, there's a lot, I mean, we can see in the news right now, we can see, we can see the ways in which, you know, there are some members of communities who are, there's, there's the anti-anti-racism crowd, which is, you know, anti-anti-racism. There's another word for that. <laughs> that's a double negative. Um, as an English teacher, that's a double negative. Let's just call it what it is. Um, or the, you know, I, I just, I think that, I think part of the reason that that, um, that those voices are able to monopolize and truly it is monopolized and monopolize time and really bully conversations around, you know, curriculum and whatnot is because Oftentimes there might be lack of transparency, right? There, there might be, you know, things that administrators aren't necessarily sharing, or there might be, um, you know, so they're, so they're making up worst case scenarios. And this is definitely one of those cases. Cause again, I, who is teaching critical race theory in K-12 schools? Like that is, that is a legal framework in, you know, law schools. And, mm-hmm. and it's just, it's mind boggling when you think about the ways in which that this has been co-opted as a quote unquote boogeyman to talk about any anti-racist, anti-bias work, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important for, and it's the responsibility of building leaders and school leaders to really be transparent with families, to really be able to say like, look, this, this is what we're for. This is what we're doing. This is what a lesson looks like because otherwise absence, transparent, absence of transparency People will make up stories based on their worst and uh, most powerful fears and biases. And so it's key that you have to be transparent and communicate what you stand for, what you value so that you can, um, because I I do believe there are more people than not who understand the need for social and racial justice work. I believe that. But it's the vocal minority who is who are able to capitalize on, honestly, ignorance and not ignorance in a bad way, but just the not knowing of others and play on those fears that we're seeing what we're seeing. Yeah. And I'll just add on to, to what Trisha is saying. I work with leaders around the country every day. And these are the things that I say to them that it's important for them to know. First, to, to Trisha's point, there are many educators who want to do this work. Yes. They are doing it and they want to do it. And what they need to know from their leaders is that they will support them when the resistance from colleagues, parents, caregivers, wherever, um, that we can always anticipate in this work happens. Teachers want to know, will you have my back? Yes. So leaders, please let teachers know that you do and you will. Um, Secondly, I'd like leaders to recognize assertions of discomfort by some educators. Um, I'd like them to recognize that as resistance. Resistance doesn't just always present itself as, you know, outward defiance, right? Um, but resistance can look like this sort of um, neutral stance, this sort of 
you know, mythical neutral stance or this sort of like, I, I just can't because I'm uncomfortable, um, especially when educators are saying they can't do the work because of it. So mm -hmm. leaders should call those educators in and offer their support, but also make it clear that this work isn't optional, it's expected. Um, leaders can recognize the teachers who are who are having these productive, safe conversations about race and racism with students and invite those uncomfortable, resistant, reluctant, whatever we want to call them, teachers to spend time in their in their classrooms and and to observe so that they can get more comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. So we hope to see a lot of leaders at IREL 21 as we have in the past because we need leaders to lead the work. Agree, agree. Leaders, I, I hope um, if you're listening that you had your notepad out. I mean, what you all just gave was just a, a great blueprint of what leaders can do to support teachers in this. Well, thank you all so much for just your conversation. Um, I do want to, uh, before we go, ask the famous rapid fire questions. These are fun questions. Um, they're just a way for our listeners to get to know you um, on another level. So are you all ready? All right, ready, <laughs> ready. <laughs> okay, here we go. What is your favorite dish? Not meal, but dish. Uh, for me, I would say it is my grandmother's cornbread dressing. I was going to go with a family too, um, family recipe also. I would say it's my mom's um, chicken adobo. All right. So the next, what is your favorite flower or plant? Hmm. Favorite flower or plant? Um, I would say I'm going to go, well, I, I think um, peonies are beautiful. Mm -hmm. mm, that's a good one. I, I echo that. Um, and I'm going to say tiger lilies. Mm. Okay, last question. What's a hobby or pastime that people would be surprised that you enjoy? Hmm. I love, um, most of the time, yeah, I'll just, yeah, I love romantic comedies. Like I'm just like a romantic comedy, like a rom-com movie. <laughs> like even even with how problem, and I know how problematic they are. I told, I watch and I understand that, but there's something about a rom-com that is so like, that is my, like my guilty pleasure comfort food. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I was going to go with TV as well. Um, I'm, <laughs> I have to say I am a law and order, um, <laughs> I'm a law and order addict. My, I got, I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> my husband calls them my friends. <laughs> and I do some of my best writing and people might be surprised to know that. Um, not some of the heavy academic writing, which I need total silence for, but I do a lot of good writing with law and order in the background. Wow. Wow. I don't know why. I just do. <laughs> that, that's pretty awesome yeah I I find a show and I don't want to start a new show I just keep watching the same show over and over <laughs> and over again so I think I've seen The Office six rounds 
from yeah. start to finish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I love it. Okay, so where can folks find you on social media? Um, you can find me at just my name, Patricia Barvia, all one word. Um, and that's my handle at Instagram, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn, wherever, wherever I am. Facebook, I keep for family pictures. In fact, if it wasn't for family, I'd be off of Facebook, but that's where we are. <laughs> yes. Um, you can also find me um, at Sonia Cherry Paul. So that's my full name without the hyphen on, on Twitter. And um, you can find me on soniacherrypaul.com at my website and uh, Dr. Sonia Cherry Paul at gmail.com. Okay. Awesome. And I'm on LinkedIn as well. Yes. So I am also going to put in the show notes um, as well, Trisha, just your work around, um, well, Disrupt Techs, not just you, but um, the organization as a whole, just, you know, thank you for that gift to us as educators, um, Dr. Kim Parker, Julia Torres, uh, you and Lorena Herman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, I have my coffee right next to me and how could I forget? I'm sorry um, so much, but um, I'll go ahead and put that in the show notes. And Dr. Cherry Paul, oh my goodness, can we not, uh, we can't leave this part out, stamped for kids. The <laughs> link, that is definitely a gift for educators to have those conversations um, with younger children. The third of the stamp for kids, stamp from the beginning and stamp. So um, I'll definitely put that in the show notes as well. Is there anything else you want to leave educators with or are we good? We are good. Okay. Um, I just want to, I want to acknowledge the, the tremendous work of educators this year who've been asked to do the impossible, um, who've been asked to do things they should never have been asked to do. And I am hoping that as you know, some educators have wrapped up and others are wrapping up that they will have an incredibly long summer yeah. um, to rest and recharge. So um, listeners, listeners, just uh, thank you again for your time and happy teaching. <laughs>